Hello, everybody. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, you'll have to excuse me today. I'm fighting uh, a pretty good cold, and I just couldn't think of anybody I knew that I disliked enough to call them and say, will you please teach tomorrow? So uh, you're going to have to endure it. We are in a book of 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul. He is imprisoned when he writes it in Rome. He has uh, <clears throat> come into conflict with the Roman government over his beliefs and the aggressive church planting that he has done throughout the Roman Empire. And his Hebrew relatives have found a way to try to say he's actually trying to oppose the Roman government, which in fact he wasn't. So he appeals his case, because he's a Roman citizen, to the highest power in the world. And that highest power in the world is the emperor. At this time it's Nero. And so he waits for many, many months waiting for Nero to hear his plea. And during that time, he writes multiple letters, and 2 Timothy is one of those letters, and most likely the very last letter he writes before he is executed by Nero. And he's writing to a man named Timothy, who he refers to as his son in the faith. Uh, Timothy is from a town named Lystra. He met Timothy, you can read about it, in Acts chapter 14. He was a young man, and, Tim, and Paul decided to invest in Timothy's life. So they traveled together for a long period of time. Uh, Paul was his mentor. And then eventually he leaves Timothy behind in the great city of Ephesus, which is one of the dominant cities in the Roman Empire. It's a city of somewhere close to a half of a million people. And it is, um, it's a tough place for Timothy to be. We know from First and Second Timothy that Timothy dealt with some things that maybe you and I could relate to. He deals with insecurity. He doesn't feel thoroughly equipped for this job. He, he deals with tension within the church. There's dysfunction inside the church. He deals with his own sense of inadequacy. Um, he it, it tends to be argumentative. We looked at that a bit last week. And Paul keeps urging him not to get caught up in all kinds of conflict, but to really focus on the essence of why he's there and why Jesus came to the planet. Now in chapter 3, which we're going to look at today, there's really two sections. In the first section, we're going to look at, at this challenge that Timothy's facing. It's twofold. One is Timothy is experiencing opposition and persecution. He's experiencing mistreatment. And Timothy doesn't do well with this, like most of us. I mean, there's not many of us who, it's a good day. I experienced significant mistreatment and opposition. You know, he, he's like, why is this happening to me? I don't want this. And he's asking questions that we ask, like, God, why me? And if you love me, why am I going through this? Why are people mistreating me? So Paul's going to address that. And the second major issue in this church is false teaching. People who have originally adopted this message of Jesus are now modifying it to fit um, their own particular bent. It's, it's like customization. So you know how it might be popular for somebody to buy a car and then they're going to customize it, meaning they're going to make it theirs. They're going to maybe change some of the engine specifications. They're going to change the appearance so that it's unique. Well, that's exactly what has been happening to the message of Jesus through 2,000 years, is that as profound as it is, some people say, oh, it's too simple. Could it really be? That God came to earth to save us. That the death and resurrection of Jesus paid for all sins. And some people say, well, I want to customize that to make it more acceptable. 
to make it uh, jive with some of my preferences, to get rid of some of the things that Jesus said that are difficult. So they're customizing the message of Jesus. And Paul's going to call this, this is actually false teaching. It's deceitful. And so that's the two main problems. Timothy's mistreatment. Paul's going to address that. And then also the false teaching in the church. So what we're going to do is going to read verse 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. And we'll look at these problems, talk about that. And then in the remainder of the chapter, verse 10 on, Paul is going to give Timothy a way to continue to thrive, even with mistreatment and with false teaching. All right? Let's start at chapter 3, 2 Timothy, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Let's pause there for a moment. Paul's not beating around the bush, is he? He's not saying, Timothy, it could get bad out there. I hope it doesn't. He says, Timothy, you got to brace yourself. You're all concerned because bad things are happening around you. Timothy, this is inevitable. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in the last days, the way that we keep time here in 2017, uh, we, we probably misunderstand what Timothy is saying. When we say last days, I think most of our minds go, oh, book of Revelation, uh, end of the world type things. But the way that Paul kept time and the way that the early church kept time is there were only two time periods in human history. The previous days or the former days, and that was everything from the beginning of the world up until the point of Jesus. Those were the former days, the former days. And then the last days were everything from the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus up until his second return. So they just saw two time periods, and it was all identified by the arrival of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. So when Paul says last days, he's not thinking, oh, the end of the world. He's saying these are the last days. The victory's been won. The, the battle's complete. What Jesus did on the cross began the end of what was and something brand new. So he's saying in these last days, and apparently these last days are at least 2,017 years long, right? So he's in these last days. This is going to happen. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, and abusive. And the list goes on disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind... now. Ladies, hang on a second because this is going to feel like a chauvinistic statement from Paul, but we'll talk a little bit about why this deeply concerns him. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth, just as Janus and Jambres. Now, we're pausing for a second, and anybody, if you've read the Old Testament, you're like, I don't I don't know those names. Well, it's because these names are not in the Bible. They're part of the Apocrypha. Uh, Roman Catholics have an addition to their Bible that we wouldn't have. And it's some of these apocryphal stories. In, in the Apocrypha, Janus and Jambres were the two, uh, not musicians, magicians, who opposed Moses originally. 
Okay? So Paul is going to use them as an example. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So as we look at this tension that's happening, let's talk a little bit about this opposition and this false teaching that's in the church. So we'll just start off with this brutal reality. Paul doesn't want to sugarcoat it. Paul, Paul says, listen, Timothy, if you were expecting for the clouds to part over Ephesus and for a rainbow to appear and a unicorn to fly by and all of a sudden everything's wonderful, Timothy, I want you to Get ready because there will be terrible times. There's a, a tension that will arise. There's an opposition to the beauty and the forgiveness and the love that's in Jesus Christ. And so he talks about both an individual and a cultural decay. As Paul speaks, it seems like he says what's going to happen is it starts here and it just continues to go downward. Timothy, you shouldn't be surprised by this. He describes them. I just want to pick a few of the, the main lines that describe what's happening when there's this, this false teaching. The first is, Paul says, they'll be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of themselves. If a person is driven by self-love, everything else follows quite naturally. Paul says, this is how it begins. Is there are these people who step forward and as they, they, they replace love for God with love for self, it may be the greatest challenge that every human being has to face. Do I love God? Is he at the very center of my life? Or do I love self? Because if I love self, what will I live for? I'll live for me, for, for pleasure, for power, whatever it might be. This is, the challenge is, is that they're lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's where false teaching begins. Because they want more power. They want more influence. They, they want to say that they have unique and special insight. So lovers of self, he also says this. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So it's possible to engage in the outward appearance of Christianity, but to completely miss the internal essence. So part of what is happening with these false teachers in the church is when you look at them, they look like they've got it all together. They're doing and saying the right things. There's this facade of religion that makes it so that people are very vulnerable because they look and they go, wow, they, they say all the right things, they, they participate, they do all the right. But Paul says, here's what's missing. Behind the facade, they're missing the very essence of faith. They deny the power of God. So they're playing religion, but the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is not in them whatsoever. An emptier religion makes for empty souls. So that's the second descriptor that Paul uses. And the third, as he talks about these false teachers, is that they're always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. So typically when you think of false teaching, People are always looking for a special knowledge. So they say things like this. Oh, yeah, well, boy, what Paul told you, that's good, isn't it? However, 
I have discovered a higher or a unique truth. You should, you should look into it. So Paul says there's this quest for further knowledge. Rather than the, the message of Jesus being sufficient, they're always looking for things on the periphery, which they find scintillating, which they find, uh, my mind has achieved a state of understanding that most people haven't. That's the nature of false teaching. You can look throughout church history, and it typically has these traits. Love of self, having a form of godliness, but not the power, and always learning, always seeking new knowledge. What does Paul say? He says, Timothy, have nothing to do with them. Now here's the scary thing. This whole list of what's going on in people's life, Paul is not writing about the culture in Ephesus. He's writing about the church, all right? This false teaching in the church. And that's a little bit scary, isn't it? He says all this is happening inside of the church. Now, oftentimes I'll hear people say, God, I just want it to go back like it was the early church in the first century and it's pure. Guess what? It was dysfunctional from the beginning, right? That's why in other places, Paul has to write to the people in Corinth. He says, hey, when you choose leaders, hey, don't, don't ask alcoholics to be your elders and don't choose people who are in regular fistfights. That's a low bar of leadership, ladies and gentlemen, right? Why? Because the church, because it's filled with people and people are broken and people are dysfunctional and they're just being introduced to the message of Jesus, it's always going to need help. So Paul says, all this, Timothy, is happening in the church. And, and last week we looked at this idea is that what Timothy was getting distracted by is trying to fix all these false teachings. Paul brings them back and he says, I don't want you to have anything to do with them. You cannot change these people's minds. It's going to take a work of God within them. Timothy, you focus on what you're called to focus on. There's always going to be disruptions in the church. There's always going to be deceit. Now, I think it would uh, behoove us to take a moment and look at these, this description of these culprits. Paul uses this word culprits, where he says, and here's what they do. They, they, they pray on people who are vulnerable. Now, there was an issue uh, that must have been rampant within the church in Ephesus because even in the book of Ephesians, which Paul writes to these same people, he has specific instructions for women. Now, in, in uh, first century Roman culture, a woman who had lost her husband, and oftentimes, as you would know, mortality rates because of war, because of disease, were very, very high. But a woman who had lost her husband, who was a widow, was incredibly vulnerable. And vul vulnerable to mistreatment financially, there were no options for them. One of the things that the church did is the church surrounded, especially widows, women who had lost husbands and orphans and cared for them because there was no safety net whatsoever. In Roman culture, when, you're, when your daughter left to join a new family, she was now part of that family and you had no obligation. So if it was your daughter, she married into another family, you had no obligation to care for her whatsoever. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Papua New Guinea. It is the exact same thing. There's a bride price, and if you have a daughter, 
your, the future father-in-law offers you a bride price, but now they are fully responsible for that girl. You as the father have no more responsibility. So what we're finding in Roman cities like this is women, their father-in-laws said, I'm not responsible for you anymore. And so they're vulnerable in so many ways. A Roman woman, unless you were in the very upper class, was illiterate. There was no emphasis in education whatsoever. So Paul writes extensively about the women in Ephesus. And here he writes this. He writes, listen, these false teachers, they worm their way in. I mean, Paul's going to use a graphic picture. Have you ever bitten into an apple and there's a worm? What do you do? Mmm, protein. No. It's like, Pleh! oh, bleh. he's saying this. These false teachers, they find a way to worm their way into homes. And Timothy, these vulnerable people, these women that you're supposed to be caring for, they don't have a way to make a living. The church is surrounding them. What they're doing is they're coming in and they are being deceptive and they are Praying on these women in Timothy, that you have to address, that you have to fight, that you have to step up for. There, uh, I debated whether or not to tell you this, but I'm going to. If you ever see me after a service, right in between, before, after, heading in, there's a prayer room back here. If I'm ever heading into the prayer room with a man and another pastor on our team, just start praying right then. Okay, so. If, if, and it does happen, if I find there are men at this church who are preying on vulnerable people, especially women, and it, it happens, there are guys that come here for all the wrong reasons, um, they'll never, I'll call them and say, I need to meet with you, they'll never show up, so I'll wait until they come, I've got people watching, they stand up in the balcony on the outside, I give them a picture, when this guy shows up, you text me, and we walk into that prayer room, and I'm the bad cop, and the other pastor is the good cop. And if I hear, oh, the first time I took Ryan Gomindi in there, like his jaw dropped. He goes, I didn't know you could be mean. I'm like, oh, I can be mean. I can be mean. And I had this guy, like I kept going until he started crying. Because he was, he was, he was praying on people. And this guy, if, once you start crying, then I'll offer you an opportunity for repentance. If you don't take that, I'll tell him, if you show up at this church again, those big guys, those security guys, they're going to like put you in your car and push you down Shiloh. That's the way it's going to go. See, the church has to be a place where people who are vulnerable, whether it's children, whether it's men, whether it's women, they have to be protected because there are predators out there who want to prey on people. And Paul's saying, Timothy, all this false teaching, I don't want you to deal with it, but you have to guard those people. That's what you need to do as a shepherd. So there's the problem, Paul's, uh, Timothy's mistreatment and the false teaching in the church. Now I want to go back, let's start at verse 10. And what Paul's going to do now is he's going to say, Timothy, <coughs> excuse me, Timothy, here's how you're going to stand strong in the midst of this. Okay, this doesn't have to overwhelm you. You, however, notice, that's how they are. You, Timothy, here, here's another way to live. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? He's going to pull out three specific places where he was mistreated. The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. 
In fact, here's, this, is, this is not my favorite memory verse, but it's probably important. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not if, not when, not but. It, everyone, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, here's the second thing. That's how they live. This is how you're going to live. Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Timothy's mother was a Jewish woman. The tradition is when a child hit five years old, they began to learn the Hebrew Scriptures. They were told the stories. They began to memorize. He says, from infancy, when you were a child, you began to learn it which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in the first nine verses, we had the problem of false teaching, the problem of Timothy's mistreatment. And now Paul's going to say, but as for you, he's going to give him two things. Timothy, I know all that's real. I know there's chaos in your church. But as for you, he says, but as for you, here's how you're going to fight that. Here's how you're going to stand strong. Number one, but as for you, follow my example, Paul says. Follow my example. Paul, I've given you a different way to live. Uh, Timothy, I've given you a different way to live. You see the degeneration of these false teachers. You see how they're into this downward spiral. They love self rather than love God. But I've lived a different life. Timothy, remember me. See, I think it's so important for all of us to look at the generations that live before us. We, we love innovation in America, right? The newest gadgets, the newest cars, the, the advancement here, the advancement there, all of that is very, very interesting. Well, Paul says, Timothy, instead of trying to find something new, look over your shoulder and remember how I live my life. Not just me, but other believers who have gone through this. It'll give you a model. It'll give you a path. We've already walked this path. Just follow after us. When you're discouraged, when you wonder, is it even possible? Just remember, well, Paul did it. Paul made it. Other believers, we, now we have centuries and centuries worth of people who have walked with God. And Paul would say, follow their example as well. He says, Timothy, I gave, you, I gave you an example. He says, follow my teaching. Follow my living. How I lived out my life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance and persecutions and in sufferings. So he mentions these three cities. He says, what, what I faced in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Now, I just want to talk for a moment about Lystra. Because that was Timothy's hometown. Acts chapter 14, you can read this. In Lystra, this is what happens to Paul. He shows up, tells everybody about who Jesus is, what God is doing on the planet. His, uh, his relatives, the Hebrew people, turn the crowds against him. And so what they do is they pick up rocks. This was an ancient form of, of execution. Then they put Paul in probably uh, below them in some sort of recess. And they just throw rocks at Paul until they are sure he's dead. It's called stoning. 
It was probably the most common way that people die. You didn't need anything special. Just pick up the rocks. You've been to the Middle East. There's plenty of them. And so they stone Paul, and then they take his corpse, they take his body, and they drag it outside of the city gates in Lystra, where Timothy lives. Timothy probably observed all of this. And they're sure he's dead. So this is, we're, leaving, we're pulling your body out of our city gates. We don't even want you buried here. They walk away. Well, we got rid of Paul. Well, it says then all the believers, Acts 14, gathered around Paul, this limp, lifeless body. They gather around him, and Paul wakes up, whew, stands to his feet, and goes back into the city. No, we don't know. Was, what, you know, was he just unconscious? Did they, when they gathered around him, were they praying? Was he resuscitated? The scripture doesn't tell us exactly what happened. All we know is that he had just been pummeled with rocks and the people were pretty sure that he was dead. They drug what they thought was his corpse out. The believers gather around. Paul gets back up. And this is what happens to Paul regularly. And so what he's saying to Timothy is this. Timothy, you're shocked that you're mistreated. You're surprised that people are mean to you. And see, Timothy's asking the same questions that you and I ask. Why me? God, if you love me, wouldn't you take away all of this? What does Paul say? Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be mistreated. And Paul uses this word. He says, but in all of these places where I've been mistreated, the Lord rescued me. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is Paul's definition of rescue? Here's my definition of rescue. The people are going to stone me. God creates a force field. All the rocks bounce off. I'm unscathed. And I go, the Lord rescued me. Here's Paul's definition of rescued. Oh, 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 I'm dead, apparently. And now somehow I'm not so dead. The Lord rescued me. I'm still standing. See, Paul's definition of rescued was this. I suffered and I'm still alive. I suffered and I still believe. I suffered and I'm still passionate. I'm going to head to the next city and I'm going to tell them about who Jesus is. That is a completely different definition of rescued. To me, rescued means the crisis was averted. Nothing bad happened to me. But Paul says, Timothy, God always rescues you. And you may have a whopper of a concussion. You may be black and blue, but you're still alive, buddy. Anybody who wants to live a godly life will suffer. Paul's saying, Timothy, follow me. I'm still filled with joy. I'm here in prison. I've got a Roman guard. I, I, I know that the chances of me getting free from this one are, are not good at all. But I'm still in love with God and I'm not blaming him for these things that have happened. Even when, it, when I just watched Mary's uh, story, it's so anywhere along the path, and I'm sure there was a lot that she wasn't able to tell us, but why me? I give up. God, how could all this happen to me? Just to see even today somebody who says, 
but I'm still alive. And I still love him. And it's not all his fault. And he's rescued me. Follow my example, Paul says. And here's the second thing. He says, but as for you, follow me. Secondly, but as for you, be a student of the scriptures. Timothy, in order to get through life and all the ups and downs, all the challenges, you need to follow my example. And then secondly, be a student of the holy scriptures. He says, continue in what you have learned. Timothy, you had this great gift that when you were a child, your mother and your grandmother deposited in you truth. They taught you the stories. They let you memorize. They challenged you to memorize the passages. Timothy, continue in those things. Don't give up. And then he makes this beautiful statement. It's probably, for me, my favorite statement about the scriptures. Now, in this instance, Paul's talking about the Old Testament. That was all that was available to Timothy. That's everything that was written before the coming of Jesus. He says, Timothy... Remember that all scripture, all, okay? The last chapter of the book of Judges. Anybody ever read that one? The book of Numbers. All scripture is God-breathed. The entire span of scripture. And he uses this word, which... For us, we don't have an English equivalent, but for Timothy, if, if you were Hebrew, it brought to mind all these images. It says all scripture is theopneustos, is breathed out from God. It's the very essence, uh, the Hebrew word ruha. It's the breath of God. Here's, here's what you wouldn't have been able to miss if you were a Hebrew. This is Genesis chapter 2. It's this beautiful creation poem. And it focuses in on the the creation of Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman. And and the the same word is used. This is that God took the dust of the earth and formed Adam. So he's a biological entity, but he's missing something key. This is then in this this beautiful, intimate moment that God took Adam and breathed into his nostrils his spirit, his breath, his wind. And at that moment, Adam becomes a living being. See, the very thought and what makes humans different than all of the animal kingdom is this, is that you have the breath of God within you, the wind of God, something of his very essence is blown into you. And then in Acts chapter 2, just after Jesus leaves the planet, all these people who are in a room and whatever the wind of God in them, uh, wherever it was, it had begun to die because of sin and because of rebellion. And here you have this group of people in an upper room in Acts chapter 2. And what happens? The wind of God comes. God breathes into them once again, and they become living beings. And it's part of the beauty of what Jesus came to do. He came to breathe into dead people so that spiritually we could be alive, so that the essence of God could be within us once again. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember this. God is still breathing. Through the scriptures, he wants to breathe life into you. I can't be there for you anymore, Timothy. I can't be there to coach you, to encourage you. But God has given you his book, his words, 
to breathe into you life. When you feel like giving up, when you don't know what to do, God is breathing his essence into you, his truth, his realities. That's how you're going to make it. Then he actually says, let me tell you what the scriptures do. They're impacting. They, they, they do this. They teach. They teach. Timothy, even though you've been studying these scriptures since you were a baby, don't ever feel like an expert. Come as a student. Come as a, a learner. Come ready to be challenged. One of the great ironies of my life is that I have a diploma in my desk upstairs in my office. And it, it says, uh, M, here's the funny thing. The first letters are really big. So it says M, which, and then little letters master of and B, biblical studies. So somewhere, some school decided that I was a master of biblical studies. The irony is, is the M and the B and the S are really big. So if you hang it on the wall, it looks like a master of BS. <laughs> I've never hung it on my wall. People are like, what? I'm like, I know. You thought I was, and it's true. <laughs> I'm not a master of this book. If I ever feel like a master of this book, I'm no longer being taught. And so come before the book. I don't know anything. Teach me, God. Open my eyes. Paul says the scripture, it teaches you. It rebukes you. Meaning it shows you the error of your ways. Doing things, I, I didn't know. That's not okay. This scripture has this capacity to hold up a mirror and you look inside of your soul and you're like, whoa. God, that, that's culturally normal. And God says, yeah, but it's not who I meant you to be. To correct, word means to straighten. Take where I'm, I'm, I'm headed into a place of self-destruction and to straighten it out, to correct me. I love that Mark Twain said this about the scriptures. Mark Twain says, most people are disturbed by the passage of scripture that they do not understand. But the passages that bother me the most are the ones that I do understand. Sometimes we go like, I don't understand that. Mark Twain says, the ones that really bug me are the ones I understand. Because what? They, they correct me. They rebuke me. And then finally he says, Scripture is given to train you in righteousness so that the man or, or the woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Timothy, whatever you face, whatever weird false teachers, whatever persecutions you face, God has given you something to prepare you for whatever comes your way. You won't be surprised. We'll be thoroughly equipped, not just partially equipped. Long after I'm gone, Timothy, you have what you need to face every challenge. All scripture is given so that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I, I have this acquaintance, and this summer he's going to run a 200-mile ultramarathon through the mountains of Colorado. The trail uh, multiple times comes up to over 10,500 feet. And he wrote me and said, it would be so exciting if you would join me in this 200-mile marathon. <laughs> and I wrote back, I would rather poke out my eyes. I'll meet you at the finish line with a box of donuts. You know, like, 
too like who wants to do that? Well, there's one, one reason that doesn't sound appealing to me is I've never trained for something like that. Can you imagine the agony? He is excited. Why? Because he's been working for years to get to this point. See, whatever challenge comes up, Paul says, Timothy, if you follow my example, if you're a student of the scriptures, you will be thoroughly prepared for whatever comes your way. Now, we're some 2,000 years later. There's still a lot of weird things happening out there and within the church. We still, I can speak for myself, I'm adverse to mistreatment and persecution. I would really prefer a nice, easy life. And I'm sometimes shocked and angry at God when things aren't perfect. And I think Paul would say the exact same things to us. Follow my example. And be a student of the scriptures. Because if you're a student of the scriptures, it's going to teach you, rebuke you, correct you, and train you for whatever it is that lies in your future. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that when you left this planet, you didn't leave people alone. You, you breathed into us anew the Spirit of God. And that breath of God continues through the Scriptures. And I'm well aware, whenever we talk about reading the Scriptures, there's all kinds of emotions that happen in this room. Some of us, the first thing, we, we feel foolish. We feel like we don't understand the Scriptures. We, we feel like we're not sharp enough. God, I pray that you would deal with that because here's what we have. We have you to tutor us. Would insecurity when it comes to the Scriptures evaporate? Lord, I pray that men and women would sit down and read the Scriptures and it is not dependent upon their minds or their cognitive abilities, but it's dependent upon the Spirit of God who teaches us through the Scriptures. Some of us, when we talk about the Scriptures, we don't feel insecurity, but instead we feel a sense of guilt. That we just, we don't pick it up, we don't read it, we don't prioritize it. And that guilt compounds and we become more and more distant. God, rather than guilt, would you give us hunger? Hunger to be students of the Bible. We don't want to look at that Bible and even if it's got a lot of dust on it, when we blow off the dust and be hungry to be taught by you. Breathe into us. Prepare us. Teach us. Correct us. And rebuke us. So that we'll be ready for whatever comes our way. In your name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you all so much for being here. Um, if you need prayer for anything, there's people up front you can trust. If you want to find out more about Jesus, who he is, there's a Bible. It's free up at the Welcome Center. God bless you. Be the hands and feet of Jesus.